Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be pediatrician Kathleen Birchelman. She's been with us a few times before, but this episode, she's going to help us understand Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. Man, that is a complicated topic that's on the minds of a lot of folks. And before we get to our interview, we'd like to first look at some recent medical news. And we're going to start with a bonus trivia question. So the diagnosis that we today know as ADHD was used as the name in 1980. It was in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual before that. So from 1968 to 1980, what was ADHD called? Okay, Was it A, minimal brain disorder? B, minimal brain dysfunction? C, minimal brain damage? D, hyperkinetic reaction of childhood? Or E, learning slash behavioral disabilities? And you know, These minimal brain names have been around, and I'm not sure if they refer to either the brain being minimal or the damage (laughs) being minimal. (laughs) So anyway, which of those names was ADHD called for the 12 years before it was called ADHD? And the answer is actually hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. Okay, that describes it well. It does describe some of it well. Uh, But before that, from 1952 to 1967, in what was called DSM-1, which was the first book that had a list of criteria for making psychiatric diagnoses, it was called Minimal Brain Dysfunction because early on people thought that this disorder was due to actual brain damage. Wow, that's incredible because that is... I mean, it it definitely changes the way you think about the disease based on what the name is. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, In 1997, for the first time, parents were asked if any of their children were diagnosed with ADHD at any time. And at that point in 97, a little over 5% of parents said, or 5% of children were said to have been diagnosed. And now that rate is up to about 10% as of 2017 anyway, so nearly doubling. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, NIMH, or if you ever read the book Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of NIM, well, that's the (laughs) NIM that they were the rats from. I don't think they had ADHD. (laughs) But they've shown that ever-diagnosed boys, 15% of adolescent boys have ever been diagnosed, whether or not they had symptoms at the time, girls between 6 and 7% which led to an overall rate of about 11%. And the mean age of diagnosis, which means half of people were diagnosed at or below this age, half were diagnosed at or above this age, the mean age of diagnosis, what would you guess? Six years old. Man, that's that's pretty young. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Bershelman because one of the things that I see just in practice is so many overlapping what we would call comorbidities, other things going on that cloud the picture. Where where does normal behavior end and where does abnormal behavior yes, begin? Yes, yes. Oh, I'm excited to talk to her too. Uh, and, okay, another little trivia question, try to get your gray mitre going. What percent of children diagnosed with ADHD are on medicine? What would you guess? Hmm, I, I guess my instinct would say probably about half. Yeah, it's actually uh, 69%, according to the National Institutes of Mental Health. In other words, 31% don't. But uh, as I'm self-medicating supposed ADHD now, that's probably why I drink so much Diet Coke. And that's another question. That was not an advertisement, by the way. But that is probably <laughs> a one question I have for Kathleen also is I know that many uh, children are able to control their ADHD with a caffeinated drink, preferably without sugar. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's the -the over-the-counter stimulant, right? There's so many of the prescription stimulants that are used, and there's so many illicit stimulants that people used illegally for for drug behavior. Um, But the legal stimulant that's much more mild is caffeine, which most of us know and love. Right. In fact, while I have a list here of when different medicines came out for uh, ADHD, the earliest one on my list is May 8th, 1886. That's when Coca-Cola was first available. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the first 
study or the first thought of a diagnosis, which is now known as ADHD, actually uh, was in England in 1902, so almost 120 years ago. But it's interesting. It was in the 1930s that the first stimulant or the first amphetamine was actually tried for treatment, Benzedrine, which were known in the 60s and 70s as Benny's. Oh, really? Oh, yes. That was before my time, That was before your time. (laughs) And I never saw one, but I heard people talk about them. Ritalin was first tried as a treatment in the 50s. Uh, But in the 20s, there was some evidence that some people with symptoms of ADHD could have it happen because of brain injury. And that, that's probably where they got the idea of brain damage, right? Yes. And so there's probably a very small subset of patients, uh, but they saw it. And sometimes uh, what you see is all there is. You don't realize there's a lot more out there besides what you saw. Uh, and the, our government, through the National Institute of Mental Health, started studying uh, stimulants for this uh, condition in 1967, so over 50 years ago. And then, of course, in 96, we had Adderall, 2001, Focalin, 2002, Stratera, 2006, Detrana, and they keep coming up with more stimulants. I, I don't know how often, you know, what you see most common in practice. You know, the there's definitely a lot of factors that go into that because the standard, at, at least in my practice, is to, you know, avoid medicine unless needed mm-hmm. and then use the ones with the least side effects and most efficacy, frequently non-stimulant options in children. Although the stimulants work great, they do carry a bigger burden of, of side effects. And so then, then when you get into stimulants, you usually try and do one long-acting medicine rather than multiple short-acting ones. Yes. But many people, it depends on your insurance because the short-acting one's fairly affordable, but you have to take it three times a day. And if long you acting, I, I don't know any, any patients of mine actually that could afford a long-acting one except my patients on Medicaid because it's free for them. <laughs> So that's wow. it's very limited based on the patient's insurance. ADHD is also a thing in those of us who are known as adults. In one, one review, it said that one-third of children will carry the diagnosis into adulthood. I'm curious to ask Kathleen about this. Uh, but apparently at any time, 4 to 5% of adults, or 1 in 20 to 25, carry the diagnosis of ADHD. Now, as far as the medical news goes, I mean, this is a recent study from April 30th, 2019, so uh, very recent, and it's from Taiwan, and their study group was the entire population of Taiwan. I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, it is not that big of an island, right, Tom? (laughs) It is an an (laughs) island, but I mean, still... That is impressive. Yeah, so among the entire population of Taiwan in 2010... There were 221,000 parents of children with ADHD. There are 174,000 siblings of children with ADHD and almost 6,000 children of parents with ADHD. And what they did with this huge cohort of people was to see how frequent did their first degree relatives have certain mental health diagnoses. Wow. In other words... If somebody you're related to has ADHD, and a first-degree relative means a parent, a child, a brother or sister. So if you have it, how frequently will your parent, child, or sibling have one of these diseases? And the results are, are quite astounding. So starting at the low end, the risk for schizophrenia, which is you know psych- a psychosis, which means you're not in contact with reality. You are living in an alternate reality in your mind. 1.7 times, which means 70% increased risk that you as the parent or child of somebody or brother or sister will have schizophrenia. Bipolar disorder, you're at 2.2 times the risk or 120% increase. Major depression, just over twice the risk. Then it really goes up. Autism spectrum disorder, over four times the risk. And what is the risk that one of your first-degree relatives will have ADHD? Almost seven times the the average. So that's that's incredible. So if the average among all adolescents ever diagnosed right now, they're saying in this country 11%, if these Taiwanese findings are the same in the U.S., that would mean you have over a 70% chance if your first-degree relative 
I those just seem too astounding to me. Well, and it, it makes you wonder about the root cause of the disease process. You know, so many so many diseases, pa- patients are always surprised when we talk about pathophysiology, what causes disease, that a lot of times we don't know. We recognize a problem and try and work our way back to figure out what's causing it. So many things, in especially in the psychological realm, we don't have very good ideas about what the causative factors are. And when you have things like ADHD related so, well, at risk of happening to relatives similar to autism or schizophrenia, it makes you think, is there some commonalities between these disease processes that we are, we're just not aware of? Right. Hopefully Kathleen can fill us in. And then I looked at, okay, what's the chance of an ADHD patient having things? And what I was able to find is that their risk of screen, uh, schizophrenia is four times you know, the average, which is probably less than 1%. So it's not a high risk, but it's still there. Their risk for depression is about 33%, one in three. And I would wonder how often is that a result of having the ADHD? Because a lot of depressions can be reactive, right? Right, correct. And then finally, of having an anxiety disorder, which I think is present in what, about 15% of the population, uh, their risk is 42% for an anxiety disorder. So there's a, there's a lot of overlap between yes. these different diseases. And it's, it's amazing how common it is for various mental health diagnoses to not be alone, to, to often be in the presence of another mental health diagnosis. Just like uh, I've been doing a lot of study lately on the opioid use disorder, and, and the majority of them have another mental health diagnosis. So it seems to be common. Well, anyway, here is the true trivia question that will be answered later in the show. I'm going to read some excerpts from a boy's high school transcript. He has a reputation for being a brilliant but mediocre student. He lacks stability and the power of concentration to do a really effective job. Uh, One teacher, who was a strict disciplinarian assigned to keep this boy's nose to the grindstone, confessed failure in the end, complaining, quote, He's casual and disorderly in almost all of his organization projects, studies at the last minute, keeps appointments late, has little sense of material things, and can seldom locate his possessions. And finally, his French teacher lamented, He has a tendency to carelessness, he's tardy, and refuses to conform. His papers are chaotic, and he invariably forgets books, pencil, or paper. These statements are describing which U.S. president and probably many of his extended family members. You are listening to Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and also on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We'll be back with more after the break. We are back with today's guests on Dr. Doctor. She is Dr. Kathleen Birchelman, a pediatrician, wife, mother, and co-founder of My Catholic Doctor, which is a new telehealth or virtual healthcare organization that brings faithful physicians and other healthcare professionals to your smartphone, tablet, or computer. But before she founded that, Kathleen worked for 15 years as an academic pediatrician for Washington University in St. Louis and the University of Missouri School of Medicine. For your third time, welcome back to Dr. Doctor, Kathleen. Oh, always a pleasure, gentlemen. Yes, and likewise. So, I keep hearing the acronyms and have for years, ADD and ADHD. So, which is it, or are both correct? Well, ADD is missing that second H, which stands for hyperactivity. So, some kids and some people have attention deficit disorder, but they don't have the hyperactive piece of it, and other people have attention deficit and hyperactivity, which is the ADHD. So you can have the diagnosis without the H, the yes. hyperactivity. Yeah, and that's more common in females. Oh, to not have the hyperactivity. That's true. I don't see as many hyperactive girls as boys. Imagine that. Boys and girls are different. <laughs> Good. I, That's I think a it's teaser slammed. for a future episode. It, it is Tom. a teaser for a future episode, <laughs> actually the next episode. But anyway, when I read about ADHD, as some of you know, I'm very interested in understanding people's temperaments. It often sounds like somebody with a, a sanguine and outgoing and extroverted temperament who happens to be social, 
fun-loving, and often loses track of time or belongings and often procrastinates. So what is the difference between something that is just a temperamental difference and something that is an actual medical diagnosis? Right. And, you know, you can have any one of those temperaments and have ADD or have ADHD. So I'm sure we've all Ah, met, yes, a sanguine person that, uh, you know, uh, you know, talks a million miles an hour (laughs) and uses their keys all the time, right? And, you know, you uh, yes, and it, so it, it spans the the temperaments for sure, okay. and especially when you consider that the ADD piece without the ADHD, refer, you know that you doesn't involve the hyperactivity. Then it's easier to picture that amongst all the the temperaments. Very good. So one temperament isn't more likely to have it than another. I have never seen evidence based research supporting Great. that, but it's my clinical experience that I see it throughout the different personality types. And it's important to note that ADD and ADHD uh, can be in your head. So there's a lot of people who have very active thought processes and their head's always spinning, their mind is always spinning. They can't stop thinking and overthinking things. And so that's still the hyperactivity, right? But you may not express it outwardly. Wow. It's like, are you inside my head now, Kathleen? Because that's my (laughs) head. It's always going a million miles an hour, like last night from 3.30 to 5 in the morning, unfortunately. And maybe that's why I self-medicate with Diet Coke throughout the day. In fact, before I forget, I wanted to ask this. Do people who are made calm by caffeinated drinks more likely to have ADD or ADHD? Yes. So there's actually data on this, and I published an article, which you must have read. Data? No, um, I didn't. uh, About exactly this point, that kids who have ADD and ADHD especially, you give them a caffeinated beverage, and they get better. Amazing, right? Yes. You think, you know, why would you give a caffeinated beverage to a kid that won't stop moving? Oh, I love the way but, you answer this. Go, go into this because this was, it was like mind-blowing. But you give them that caffeinated beverage and now they, they're able, they're stimulated. They're, they've been given an, a, a medication, a stimulant, caffeine. And so they don't have to self-stimulate all the time because that's what they're doing when they're moving all the time. They're self-stimulating. And people say that kids grow out of the, the hyperactivity piece of ADHD and it's true that they stop moving their body so much because they learn self-control, but their brain is still moving a million times an hour. And you can medicate that by giving a stimulant, and then you quit self-stimulating. Now, does this affect the brain moving so much? It can. If it's different in different individuals. It definitely works in children. And that's why tons of people with ADHD, especially adults, self-medicate with caffeinated beverages, and it works. Caffeine is an effective treatment for ADD and ADHD. So, like, when I'm watching a movie at home with my wife, my feet are bouncing 100 miles an hour, and she's constantly grabbing them. Yeah. Is that a symptom that people with ADHD might have? Sure. That's an, ex- it's an example of hyperactivity, um, although, of course, there are many other, there's other reasons why people might be moving Good. their feet, and that that's part of why... We, um, you know, have to do a very careful diagnosis of ADD and ADHD. It's not just, um, you know, this kid won't settle down. There's many other things that can cause these symptoms. That's that's a great point, Kathleen, and and that's one of the things that I talk to patients a lot about trying to figure out, you know, for an individual patient where normal behavior stops and where the disease process begins. If if you Google ADHD. A lot of the symptoms are things that many people without ADHD experience occasionally. Mm -hmm. How do you know when this is the disease that needs treatment as opposed to just a normal variation or especially for young boys, boys just being boys at six years old? Sure. And and actually, the point you bring up is the most common issue. Is this child just too young to be diagnosed? for ADD or ADHD? Are they just a toddler that has a lot of energy? And this is why we use very clear scales. There are diagnostic scales, that's what they're called, but you fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires and oftentimes they'll ask several people to do it, including a classroom teacher that's known the student for at least, uh, there's a minimum amount of months they have to have known the student. 
and a, a parent and then another caregiver. And the scales are graded and they have been shown to, to be an effective uh, predictor, or, you know, uh, effective way of diagnosing ADD and ADHD compared to just people feeling like they're hyperactive. So it's, uh, it's a good way to, to make a clear diagnosis and also rule out other conditions that could cause similar symptoms. And you're correct, the most common condition that causes similar symptoms is just age, that it's just the child's too young. No, In fact, is... there's good research that shows, it's recent, that shows that kids who are in the youngest of their class, their school class. So oh, you have in a, any school class, you have 12 months yes. represented in age. And the kids who are in that youngest month had a much higher rate of ADHD diagnosis ah. than the kids in that highest month. Man. And so that, that would suggest almost an overdiagnosis based on age. What? That's right. What would be the, the youngest age you'd, you'd consider diagnosing a child with ADHD? Not before age four, and even then, I personally am very hesitant. The, the official recommendation is not before age four. I'm very hesitant to make a diagnosis for me personally before age six. However, I'm also extremely cautious on medication. So just because you make a diagnosis and fill out the paperwork and do the evaluation doesn't mean that child needs to start medication. So they can have an evaluation that says, well, ADHD is likely here. And then you can choose to make behavioral changes and deal with it. So I think early evaluation is powerful and important, but you, uh, you, you can't make a clear diagnosis before age four, and even then I'm hesitant to start medication before age six. So why would a parent decide to have their children evaluated? What signs should they be looking for? Like if, if there are moms and dads listening now, what might tip them off? Most parents of kids that have ADD and ADHD get the feeling because they're exhausted. Because as I say, parenting a child with ADD and ADHD is called no fun parenting. It makes your job <laughs> three times harder. Yes. So parents usually know, right? So this is, you know, you know, how many times do you have to ask an average kid to pick up their coat off the floor and hang it up? In, um, you know, how many times do you have to ask them to do that before they actually do it? Even if you, even if there's positive and negative consequences, like if you put that on the on the hook, I'm not going to yell at you. And the negative consequences that you know I'm going to make put you in the bathroom because you're four years old. I'm going to put you in timeout, or you have a negative consequence. How many times does it take for them to actually come home from school and put their coat where it goes? Got it. And and then what are the, some of the things? For lack of attention, because I don't know many kids under the age of six who can really hold attention a long time, at least regularly, on cue. Well, they can if they like what they're doing. So even kids with ADHD will pay attention to a video game or television, right? So it's not just do they attend, it's do they do what they don't want to do, right? Right? Can they pay attention reading a book or something like that? And they need to be able to pay attention to an activity that's not stimulating. So kids with ADD and ADHD will pay great attention to a highly stimulating activity like a sport, or in some cases, like I, I have one patient that is this incredible pianist and would just like pound out on the piano for like forever. He loved to just play the loudest, fastest <laughs> music, you know, crazy as he could. Why? Because that's a highly stimulating activity, right? Yes, it is. So they have to be able to pay attention doing something that's not stimulating, that's self-soothing, that's calming, like reading a book or something you don't want to do, like homework. So even at the age of six? Yes, even at the age of six. And Kathleen, that, that brings a question to my mind. You know, paying attention in situations that are not stimulating, things that you don't want to do, it, it, just going a bit further... How how much of ADHD do you think, or have you have you seen to be a, a nature versus nurture? Because to some extent, there's times when all kids don't want to do things, and we as parents have to help them pay attention. And most disease processes are partially genetic and partially kind of lived experience and environment. Do you see, you know, especially with the rise of technology, there being a bigger component of nature versus nurture? Yes. ADHD is a highly heritable disease, so it, it's extremely 
nature and less nurture. And I think that's one of the hardest part for parents. You give yourself such a hard time. All the parents do. Yes. You know, if I could only parent them a little bit better, they would hang that coat up, right? What am I doing wrong with my parenting that I have to remind them every day to put their the homework in their backpack, to put their shoes where they go? Why is this parenting thing not working? And the answer is, it's your kid's genetics. That's a huge piece of it. But you're not off the hook here, pun intended, because <laughs> that's your that's your job, right? I mean, the, the, you've still got to parent them. No matter how much medication you give them, it's our job as parents to teach our kids to pay attention. It's our job to teach them routines about your shoes going the same place, your coat goes in the same place, your backpack goes in the same place. We have to teach all this even if they're on medication. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no pill that's going to make any disease completely go away. Oh, so the diagnosis of ADHD, the criteria have changed over time, haven't they? Yes, and we've gotten better is the truth. We've gotten better at differentiating ADHD from other disorders. For example, one of the most common um, uh, we, uh, diseases that can be missed is obstructive sleep apnea or poor sleep. Even as children? Even as children, they can have big tonsils and snore, and um, they're not sleeping well. And uh, sleep-deprived kids have ADHD symptoms. And that can be because they're snoring, or it can be because they don't go to bed at time, on time, or they've got electronics in their room and they're on their phone. That is a great pearl of wisdom for parents listening. So first thing to check is, are they sleeping well? And do you have any tips for that, for helping children sleep well? Well, your phone needs a bedtime. And I, <laughs> I don't recommend ever giving a child a phone before eighth grade at the earliest. My kids, personally, I don't give my kids phones until they can pay for them themselves and oh. probably till they're out of the house. That's, oh, you're that um, mean mom. That is pretty good. That is good. I like that. I am. Um, <laughs> But um, but I do for uh, depending on the situation I you know I, I say definitely not before the eighth grade, and um, it, when your child has a phone or any other electronic device for that reason that device has a bedtime. You need screens off time in your house. So in our house, all screens go off at eight thirty p.m. And you know I have you know this studio this monitoring system and everything goes off at eight thirty. All the computers lock. The TV doesn't work. You know, the Internet goes down at 830. <laughs> what a great mom. Well, let's go into parents' fears. When you make a diagnosis of ADHD or when they're suspecting that their child has a diagnosis of ADHD, what are some things that they might fear? Well, I think there's some concern that um, your child's going to be on an addictive medicine. That's the one I hear the most. And they really, really don't want to put their child on a stimulant medication. Um, another one is this fear that you've somehow really not been a good parent because your child is acting this way. And then the other thing I hear is, is there something else wrong with them? And that is true that ADD and ADHD have uh, the pa patients with these diagnoses are more likely to have another behavioral health condition, such as autistic spectrum disorder, is one of the big ones. We are going to cover some of the things that Kathleen just mentioned after the break. But right now, we're going to take that break here from the studios of Redeemer Radio in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio show and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, and we are back today with Dr. Kathleen Berschelman discussing ADHD. And Kathleen, one of the things that you had mentioned is the strong genetic component. Can you, can you help describe that a little bit more to us, especially for parents? I, I think the temptation would be to feel guilty that there's maybe something they did wrong, but that doesn't seem to be what the evidence suggests. Well, yeah, the evidence is suggesting more and more that ADHD is, is heritable, and now we're getting to the point where we can start to identify specific gene sequences associated with it. There is still some component of nature, but the big, the most meaning, the 
piece of nature is that kids with ADHD that are given real structured and real behavior plans can largely overcome their symptoms. But the diagnosis itself is largely genetic. And that's the message for parents. You didn't do this. It's not your fault. I mean, if you Google ADHD causes, you're going to find stuff that says it was your epidural anesthesia and delivery that caused ADHD or was it your diet or all kinds of other stuff. And the truth is you didn't do this. It, you know, it's just, this is the way God made your child, but it's your job to be their parent. And what do you think about the data that shows that, you know, over the last 20 years, the diagnosis of ADHD has almost doubled from like 5 to 10% in, in kids. Do you think it's a real thing? Do you think we're better at diagnosis? How do you understand that data? I think it's screens. I think it's smartphones and iPads, and that 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 use is that there are highly stimulating activities to use these screens, and um, uh, that kids are are not able to calm themselves down as easily. So, any person with some ADHD tendencies or symptoms, because it's not black and white. It's not like you've got it or you don't. It's really there's, you know, kids with more or fewer, um, you know, degrees of, of, of ADD and ADHD. And you, if you take anybody with a tendency towards attention deficit and you give them a screen, they're going to have an even harder time settling back into non-stimulating activities like doing homework. Now the big question, what does ADHD look like? If your child has it now, what, what is a likely or common pathway from a, a six-year-old who's been diagnosed? What might they look like in 5, 10, 20, 30 years? Well, a peak age of hyperactivity is about age 8 to 10. So the hyper, hyperactive movement itself tends to taper off. Um, as they, you know, go finish their school age years, um, as they get from 10 to 12, it tends to get better. But remember that the impulsivity that goes with ADHD doesn't go away. So as these kids turn into tweens and then teens, they're still taking risk, high risk behaviors. They still have impulsivity. They're also far more likely to smoke tobacco wow. because tobacco is a stimulant oh. and it's a very effective medication for ADD and ADHD. And unmedicated patients with ADD and ADHD are more likely to smoke than those who are already taking stimulant medication. Wow. So it's one of the reasons I recommend treating kids with ADD and ADHD with stimulants, um, especially if, if, if they're going to move on to these risk-taking behaviors, such as smoking tobacco, um, and then there's much worse stimulants available that are illegal drugs, right, like the yes. methamphetamine, et cetera. Um, even if they don't venture into tobacco and drugs, they're more likely to take general risks. So that means driving too fast or just impulsive behavior without thinking twice about something. They're more likely to, you know, really get angry quickly. And they have this, you know, hyper um, arousable state, right? So they, they go into fight or flight more quickly than other people. And there's some kids that are going to, their flight means they're going to run away and be scared and um, be antisocial. And then there's other people that are going to be talk too much socially and um, be, you know, really very, very socially active and they may get angry too quickly and they can get in trouble at school for that. They can blow their first job because they yelled at their boss without thinking twice. Man. And so I think, especially with the tobacco, you, you're really demonstrating an important reason for treatment when I know a lot of the folks I talk to, there's a strong preference for not treating until it's absolutely necessary. How, how do you make that decision in your practice when to start treatment, or is it something that really everyone should consider with ADHD? No, I, I absolutely think that you should always start with behavioral interventions unless there's a, you know some very immediate risk, which is rare. I can't I can't think of one situation actually. So for me personally, I always start with behavioral interventions because whether you're on meds or not, 
they're still the mainstay of treatment. And this is the, you know, routine, 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 and, and making sure that you're, you have a, the set bedtime, the set wake-up time, that your screens have a bedtime, that um, you're, you teach your kids to always put their homework away in the, in the same place, that you really sticking to that routine as much as possible, um, that you really act as a secretary to your child. And I think you have to accept that as a parent of a child with ADD and ADHD, that you are their secretary. So that means that, you know, they may need many reminders to do something another child only needs one reminder for. And then you need to put as many systems in place where they're their own secretary. So does that mean that they have alarms? Like we, I really like alarm using. So when it's time to, um, go out the door for the school bus, there's an alarm. That way you as a parent aren't the bad guy saying, time to go, you're going to be late, right? Ah. There's just an alarm and the kid knows, okay, that's my drop dead time. I need to be walking out the door now. <laughs> and we'll do two We'll do two alarms, you know, one five minutes before and one, um, you know, at the actual time when you have to walk out the door. And that allows the child to be self-sufficient. And as that child moves into adulthood, they'll use, they'll use all these tricks. You know, they're going to set all their alarms on their phone that tell them it's time to get ready. Now it's time to actually go. And what are some other behavioral? You have a lot of different uh, practical suggestions for parents. Well, I, my uh, the alarms are my favorite. And then yes. the other one is sleep. So sleep is essential for kids with ADHD. And it's important to note that kids with ADD and ADHD actually have a natural reduction in their melatonin. So if you test all these kids for their melatonin levels at bedtime, they're lower than everyone else. They have a harder time falling asleep. Ah. And it, on average, it takes them longer to fall asleep. And so even, even if they're not medicated, then if you add a stimulant medication to that child's life, one of the side effects of these stimulants is difficulty falling asleep. So now you have a kid that really has trouble falling asleep, and sleep deprivation is going to worsen their ADD and ADHD symptoms. So I do recommend melatonin supplementation in these kids if they're having trouble uh, falling asleep. And you can get these at over-the-counter at pharmacies or health food stores. Is that correct? Yes, but you have to be careful about dose, that many people are using more melatonin than they really need. And then I also recommend what I call melatonin hacks, which are doing everything in your natural environment to increase your natural melatonin. So turning off screens and lights a half an hour before bedtime and even pulling down window shades, especially in the summertime with little kids, you've got to make the environment dark and quiet and settle the child for um, 30 minutes before bedtime. Now, I've noticed that some of us in our family fall asleep better with a fan on and some without a fan. Is that related to what will help or hurt somebody with ADHD trying to sleep? Well, background noise in general is, is inhibits um, sleep latency, meaning that it is going to make you fall asleep later. Interesting, because some but of I, us fall asleep better in our family with it than without it. So that's not an ADHD thing. That's something else then. I've, I've never seen any data on that. Okay. That's fair enough. Uh, something else that I've seen you write about you know, behavior is that for parents to tame their own anger. Why would you recommend that? Why is that necessary? Oh, because uh, <laughs> your child needs a secretary, not a policeman. Okay, so um, and the the kids with oppositional defiant disorder need a policeman. They need to be told clearly if you have X behavior, the consequence is going to be Y. But kids with ADD and ADHD don't need a policeman. They need a secretary. They really didn't mean to forget their homework again today. Right. And so they need to be gently reminded with kindness. And it's okay to give consequences, especially if it's occurring many times, because um, some negative consequences work. But your anger is going to hurt their self esteem and their self view. And often, one of the primary comorbidities of ADD and ADHD is depression because these kids are so frustrated. They really wanted to do it right, and they couldn't again. So their increased again. risk for depression, is it is it secondary to the ADHD? Yes. Okay. So it's that it's they're so frustrated 
that everything they try to do right, they do wrong. They're late, even though they're trying to be on time. You know, they forgot their homework again, even though they have a system and it's supposed to go in the folder and they didn't do that. And they keep, they get negative consequences of being yelled at by at home, at school, constantly. And they don't need more you know, people yelling at them, telling them they did something wrong because they already know they did something wrong. <laughs> they need a better system of reminder. And also, in some cases, anger actually serves as a stimulant for the child. And they, they mm. learn to stimulate off that. And, you, and that's anger. why kids with ADD can develop oppositional defiant disorder, where they're actually intentionally in a battle of the wills with the parent because they're stimulating off that. Man. You know, you, you do have a lot of really good tips. I, I was reviewing an article you wrote, and another one that you, you brought up that I really liked was a chore chart and a reward system. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So I, I, chore charts are, you know, every I think every family needs a chore chart. But kids with ADD and ADHD really need a chore chart. And both parents and all caregivers really have to be on the same page. So it, in order for chore charts or any of these things to work, you have to reinforce it all the time you know you can't be skipping days but chore charts start real simple with a a set of chores like maybe it's clearing the table but then add on the routine daily things like pack your backpack brush your teeth depending on the age of the child the things they need reminders for i mean i don't know my 15 year old still needs to be reminded to brush his teeth so i think you can (laughs) leave it all on there (laughs) now before you were talking about impulsivity and risk-taking and i've read that some people are deficient in this dopamine receptor ddr2 and they need extra stimulation or they're adrenaline junkies is this similar or is this different from the desire for risk-taking in ADHD uh, patients? Right. So there is a specific risk-taking behavior. Um, and I I don't know of any specific scale that's going to differentiate these two uh, diagnoses. There, there, are, there are people that really like, you know, cliff jumping, but don't have problems with attention. Got but it. I think the two really go together um, because these people that are, you know, stimulation junkies, yes. um, are, are really, um, when they don't have their stimulation, are going to self-stimulate and act like they have ADHD. And then what happens to the average adolescent who becomes an adult with ADHD? Do they outgrow it or does it just change in the way it manifests? You never change your genetics, right? right? It's all still there. But as adults, we learn self-control and we can grow in virtue. And that's my biggest take-home tip for parents is that's our goal, right? right. Is to help our kids grow in virtue and get them to heaven. And it, that's what we're going to teach them all the way are the virtues and practice it every day. And I use the words of the virtues, you know, you know, fortitude, self-control, and even there's lots of different lists of virtues. Um, Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, always talked about the virtue of cheerfulness. and <laughs> We talk about that a lot, too. Um, and so you teach the virtues. And what you get is a person with ADD or ADHD that has self-regulation and self-control even though it's, it's an intentional choice, right? It doesn't come naturally. And so teaching the virtues and teaching self-control gives you an adult that still has ADD and ADHD, but is able to function in the workplace and in school, and people don't know that they have ADD and ADHD, but their brain is still going crazy, and they're probably still drinking four to five caffeinated beverages <laughs> a day. So, and speaking of that caffeine, while we're working on growing in virtue, how do you talk to parents about medicine and how do you decide when to use one? I go to medication really when there's significant dysfunction. So that's an important part of the diagnosis is that the child has to be not, it has to have um, dysfunction in one of their major areas of life. Like they're not able to function well in school. They're not able to function well at home. And so everybody's different. Is it grade failure? Is it that they're not able to um you know, stay still in a classroom? Is it that they are um, fighting with their parents every day and the family atmosphere is just unbearable? Whatever it is, you have to get to that point of real dysfunction where and behavioral interventions aren't working. 
that, and that's when I'll use the medication. I believe strongly in homeschooling. Uh, we uh, homeschool our own children, and I think that when you take an ADHD kid out of the class and homeschool them, it's so much easier to let to deal with an ADHD kid. You can send them outside on the uh, to play for uh, ten minutes and then pull them back in, and you know, keep working with them. We're going to take a break before the last segment of the show and finish up with some more practical tips on ADHD with Dr. Kathleen Bircherman here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with the final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. And of course, that means the answer to the trivia question where I read some transcript excerpts from my high school boy. Of an American president, right? Did I say that? Yes, I did say that. So... Whose French teacher lamented? He has a tendency to carelessness. He's tardy, refuses to conform. His papers are chaotic, and he invariably forgets books, pencils, or paper. And as a clue, there's good evidence that he received injections of amphetamines while he was president. That would be John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Okay. And there's evidence that many of his extended family members may well have also had AD. HD. So now you know the rest of the story. So back to Kathleen in far off Connecticut. Kathleen, just during the break, said there's some exciting news coming this October, courtesy of our government, believe it or not. Kathleen? Well, the FDA will start issuing these special DEA licenses that allow doctors to prescribe ADD and ADHD medications via telehealth. You still have to, to see the doctor every three months, but you can do it via telehealth, and that can even occur at the child's school, which just makes these appointments so much more convenient for parents. Man, that's a huge victory. Do you guys treat a lot of ADHD with the Catholic Doctor website? We do. It's one of the most common, most common things people come to us with. Because parents are hesitant to start medications, they're interested in virtue-based behavioral management, and they, you know, really are looking for faith-based uh, approach to treating it. What are some of the common medications you prescribe for this? Well, methylphenidate is good old Ritalin, right? And it's been around for a very long time, and it's extremely well tested, and it's passed the test of time. And we know the risks and the benefits of it well. And they make methylphenidate in a long-acting preparation, which is called Concerta. And I generally um, like to start with methylphenidate because it is so tried and true. And then um, if the, if a child attends school and needs a long-acting preparation, I'll go to Concerta. Concerta is just methylphenidate that um, is in this special capsule that dissolves slowly. And then what are some other ones you go to? Because I know there are some where you actually have, you stick on a patch on your behind sometimes for kids or on your hip. Yes, it's very expensive, but it does work. And so we have stimulant medications in many forms, and then we have the non-stimulants. So there's, you know, there's different ways of taking them. So um, there's the patch, and there's even um, chewable uh, medications now for younger children that can't swallow pills. And then we have the non-stimulants. And a lot of people are very interested in the non-stimulants. I actually... I do like them and I do use them, stuff like uh, 10X and Stratera. But the bottom line is kids usually do better on the stimulants. So the stimulants are amphetamines. They are an addictive medication. They're a controlled substance. And when used inappropriately, they can be abused. What trustworthy resources can you recommend for parents who want to learn more about the way you would approach ADHD? One of my favorite um, resources on this is some data coming out of the University of Connecticut, but also I have my own website, which is, uh, is uh, it's called Catholic Pediatrics, and it's affiliated with the My Catholic Doctor website. Also, if you Google, you will find all of my former writing when I was employed by Washington University in St. Louis at my blog called Children's MD. And Children's MD is actually where the bulk of my writing still resides. However, they have removed my name from all of my writing, and it says the hospital is team. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
Well, Kathleen, we really appreciate all your insights, especially with the virtue-based therapy. And if if there's any listeners who want to learn more, please do check out those websites. Kathleen, what, what final comments do you have for our audience? That love your children. That, you know, ADHD <laughs> is a gift, actually. It, what you get is a kid that really wants to do a lot with life and not the <laughs> huge joy. <laughs> um, let them play outside more and, and learn to love the joy. ADHD kids tend to be very joyful. And um, then when, boy, when they're mad, they're really mad. <laughs> and you've got to love the joyful part and just keep refocusing on that. And you've got to tame your own anger in your heart and focus on the joy. Kathleen, that is just beautiful. I think uh, you are becoming a regular on the show for a good reason. You have lots of practical tips from a Catholic and fully informed pediatric viewpoint. So, Andrew, I guess this brings us to the end of yet another episode. Thank you for everybody out in radio and podcast land, whatever that is, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio and heard around the world on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please, we ask you, share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Uh, especially if it's a friend who happens to be studying to become a doctor, nurse, or other healthcare professional. They can listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And also, please be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing non-moral aspects of why women might want to avoid hormonal contraception, anything except the morality regarding birth control, with Dr. William Stigall from Dallas. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com slash doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.